0: Hi, it's Monday morning, 5th of July, and I'm um, running a little bit behind yesterday at a Lavalier over a friend of mine. And um, let's see if we can get this done this week. Okay, there's a podcast. It's being sponsored by the Finkelstein's, Aaron Aaron Finkelstein and family. Thank you and honor of the memory, I should say, of his grandparents, Ervin uh, and Marion Spivak. I knew Ervin Spivak very well, as a matter of fact. We used to sit together. <laughs> Many, many years in the old Shomeray Muna. I'm talking about the old Shomeray Muna. And maybe even before that, for many years. I bought a car for him, actually. Um, that's why I used to go on dates with long ago. I have a lot of stories about that red Pontiac. But anyway, uh, so I'm happy to pay tribute to their memory. Um, actually, Marion's payback to back to her brother-in-law. That's who the funeral I was at yesterday. Robert was Shavalsky. A nice generation is gone now. Uh, I want to talk about Montefiore, because I saw that's his uh, 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 yardside, whatever, coming up. And do not know have to be rabbis, rabbis. Uh, Montefiore was not a rabbi, but I think he was probably, perhaps, a very complicated character. Uh, one of the most famous uh of the last couple hundred years, without question. So now let's get down to this. We're dealing with somebody who lived in the 1800s. He actually was about 100 years old when he died, a little over... I think he's born in 1784 and died in 1885. So he was pushing 101. You know, he already hit 100. He's pushing 101. That's pretty good, especially in those days. Now, he was loaded, as we shall see. Maybe that helped. Uh, So our hero today is a British Jew. Okay? Montefiore tells you right off the bat, number one, he's Sephardic, came from a Sephardic background. Number two is Italian. Montefiore is Mount of Flowers, you know, but he's he's British, as a his his. These are the Sephardim in England. You right, who uh, among the first that were let back in? Oh, to, just to hazard very briefly, long ago, a thousand years ago, there were Jews in England. I mean, back in the time of Ivanhoe. But then they were kicked out, as happened in all the European countries in 1290, and then for a couple hundred years, no Jew was allowed to be in England, and then things changed in the 1660s, in the time of Oliver Cromwell, if you know who that is. And after the 1660s, small numbers of Jews moved to England. Um, it's a very complicated story. Formally, they weren't allowed in, but informally, they were. A little bit like America with the, uh, with the Spanish, you know, with the, with the Mexican immigrants. You know, it's illegal, but they're here. Um, nothing in those numbers. There's a few here, a few there. That's one of the reasons, one of the problem, really. <clears throat> very small numbers. And these Jews um, first were the Sephardim, and then were others. And they formed the, uh, the the community in London and places like that. Uh, now Ashkenaz and Sephard, of course, that's two different communities, and they within well, before too long they built two different shuls, which is fine. Uh, the Sephardic shul. Now the Sephardic originally were the Spanish Portuguese. In other words, uh, Oliver Cromwell, without going through too much of an richez on this, uh, was uh, having in mind to admit the like from Amsterdam, you know, those types, the Portuguese Jews, who really you know, killed the Muranos, many of whom were born Catholic. Uh, there's a long geschichte on this. If you're interested in the subject, I did a, a series last summer, I think, during the Corona, called Jews and War. And one of them was all about Alvaro Cromwell and his Jewish context. if that subject that interests you. see, so you go on to YouTube and find it. Um, but, uh, you know, on my, on my YouTube channel. But, uh, anyway, Jews started moving in, and uh, primarily uh, Portuguese Jews. I mean, you didn't have to be, there were some Sephardim from elsewhere, but primarily it was your Western Spanish Portuguese Jews who were themselves Moranos, who now came out of the closet because England was a free country, or their children or grandchildren and so forth. And our hero is kind of like from that because uh, Montefiore's family, the family of this guy, was actually originally from uh, Livorno. Uh, Livorno was a city in Italy which was like the only town, which didn't have a ghetto. I've spoken about it a whole bunch of times. Uh, Leghorn, they call it in English. It's a port city on facing towards America that side, the west, and uh, for various reasons, they turned an enterprise zone into you know, pure capitalism. And the ruler said anybody can live here as long as they make money. And so, the long and the short of it is they set up a very successful Portuguese Jewish community. Uh, all descended from these Murano types. Uh, So some of them, now these were business people. They made money, not through being doctors and lawyers, that kind of business, they made money through business, you know, trade. In fact, the Jews of Livorno cornered a lot of markets, okay? Uh, You're going to laugh at what I'm going to say. They were in charge of the combs and the fashionable combs of the 18th century, which were from sea fish and shells and junk like that. Who, who cares? You know, if you're in the garment trade, anything you can turn into a fashion, you make money. Uh, now, some of these Jews moved to other uh, Sephardi communities, right? Notice there's what you call Portuguese network or diaspora. So you can move from London to Livorno, from Livorno to London, to Bordeaux, to Hamburg, Amsterdam, and so forth. So in the case of Montefiore, his grandparents, I think, were from Livorno, and they moved to London. <laughs> And uh, therefore, he's going to be English. It just happens to be, for accident, that his parents were visiting, um, you know, their family, their relatives in Livorno, and that's where he was born. See, he's British. He happened to be born over there. I don't understand myself how in the 18th century you take a pregnant woman and you go visiting while you're pregnant on the sea voyage and that kind of thing. You know what it's like to go on a road? It's not a train or anything like that. You, it was like a very shaky, bumpy ride. I guess men and women were hardier. I don't know. But anyway, he was born over there. But he's he's raised in England. Now, this is 1784. So in other words, when the French Revolution breaks out, he's like five years old. And next 20 years, actually next 25 years, till he's about 30, is the famous wars of England and France. Okay. And that's the environment in which he's growing up. Now, here's a guy growing up in London. Uh, his family was not necessarily rich. <coughs> it depends how business is. And uh, this is the good old days of pure capitalism. So in other words, if there's a shift in the market, you know, things can go bad. And uh, you can get screwed over. Um, In his case, his uh, family had a business, but it didn't do that great. I remember exactly the details. And uh, he didn't have much schooling. At a young age, he had to go work. But working in the Spanish-Portuguese way, which means you're working in... um, and business and finance, things like that, you know? And so, um remember, he worked in the tea business and the grocery business and so on and so forth. But on the other hand, what you're doing is learning business from the bottom up. You start an accounting house. Accounting house is, you know, where the old, like you see in the Charles Dickens movies, you know, where everybody's sitting with the ledgers and keeping track of what's coming and what's going out and how to pay bills and things like that. So from the perspective of, it's like you would say today, you get a real business education. Now, I'm going to tell you something. A lot of people today would say, what do you need all this schooling for? That's the kind of schooling we should have in the day schools. This is a famous debate you have in the geisha schools, right? I mean, if it's all about making money, could be for a lot of guys. They ain't got the time for science, math, history, and that kind of thing. It doesn't interest them. Already at the age of 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, they'd rather be learning accounting and business stuff and so forth. And they'll make more money. You know that's that mentality. That's where how he grew up. Uh, so he's born in 1784. So in the early 1800s, he's already getting to be 20 years old, and he wants to advance in life. Why not? And uh, this is not a person. I mean, let me put it this way. What was his Jewish education? Eh, yeah, I mean, he can read the sitter, you know, that sort of thing. If he's Portuguese, so they teach them how to daven in the. By rote in the elementary schools, you know, and, and 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 like that, and you know that's that's what he knew. Uh, what we call mimetic, you understand. He's not learning no shulchan I don't think he could read a safer in his life, but he knows what to do on Shabbat because you know people know what you do. Friday night you come home, you make kiddush and so forth and so on. Saturday morning you do this that and the other, and I don't think he was so frum. England was a terrible place for frumkeit. There was a the, the, officially the Judaism was Orthodox. It wasn't a place for reform or anything like that at that time. It didn't exist. But it's tremendously kalsh a column. Everybody knows that England and London, already from the 1600s, was pretty bad news as far as Shmiras HaMittras is concerned. And so, I'll say it again. You know, formally everything was Orthodox. And if you got married, it was a Jewish marriage. And if you got divorced, it was a Jewish divorce. And if, if that's how you calculate things. But if you want to know if people... Really keep things, or you know, uh, Shabbos, kosher, all the rest were uh, pretty, pretty, pretty schwa right? Now um, this is a world in which you don't get married to, to 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 making a living, and so don't expect these kind of guys who are not rich to get married young in life necessarily. Um, anyway, he finally got to what he wanted to do, which is get in the stock market and be a, a broker, because then you can make money if you're lucky. The trouble is, and this is part of life, he got screwed over by a Jew who took all the money and cheated, took all the clients' money and cheated him in a fraud case. Uh, so he lost his license. So in other words, he wasn't a a, a uh, conspirator, but he was the uh, dummy who got taken for a ride by this, I'm sorry to say by a Jew, Joseph Elkin Daniels. So a Jewish guy took him, you know, he probably saw he's 22, 23, doesn't know much, he'd take advantage of him. So he broke the, the the stock exchange rules, whatever it was, and he didn't go to jail, but um he lost his license. It must have been tremendous busyness, and he was exposed for a dumbbell. My friends, this is called learning in life. I'm telling you how education was done once upon a time, and this is the school of hard knots you know either you 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 collapse as a result of this, I get a nervous breakdown or you pick yourself up and you go Victor, you know those, now you learned a lesson not to be taken in. By uh, shysters and things like this, especially if it's your client's money, <laughs> right? So, uh, he, you know, tried his hand to go into other businesses and things like this. <laughs> not exactly sure what he did afterwards. But, you know, he made money, uh, but not a lot, not a whole lot. Uh, I I imagine what he did was engage in business. This is during the Napoleonic Wars. I told you again, from 1790 to 1815, is all wars. And so, there's such a thing called a war economy. And if you know what you're doing, you can make money here and there and that. I don't think he got loaded, but, but you know, he, he sort of picked himself up and got into business. Now, he's not married, and so uh, he joins uh, lodges and things like that. Okay, yeah, no problem. Uh, he's a member of the synagogue, because all the Portuguese got to belong. Uh, he goes to shul sometimes. He keeps the holidays somewhat. See what I'm saying? Like that. And um, how would you expect anything different? Okay? Um, there were, in order to get ahead in life, you wanted to be, in those days, you wanted to show you patriotic and say so he joined the militia. <laughs> militia means if Napoleon ever lands and invades, they're going to fight him. Everybody knew Napoleon's not going to land. When he joined, it was like 1810, 18 something like that. Napoleon was not going to land in England. <laughs> So you get to wear a uniform. He, was, By the way, he was tall, dark, and handsome. He was 6'3". Tall, dark, and handsome. That helps. Uh, you know, he wanted to show he's British and so forth. Very, I, I've i known in Gibraltar someplace some guys like that. Uh, his whole misceas is going to be one for his whole life. And that's going to be part of his whole persona and myth. He's 100% British and 100% Jewish. That's an interesting thing if you can pull it off. Interesting thing. Now, um... Eventually, as we'll see, he kind of bounced back, and in his 30s, um, he started to make money. Now, at, when he in 1812, when he was 28 years old, that's so not so young, uh, he got married, uh, and he married Ashkenazi girl of a well-to-do guy. So he must have bid somebody's making a living, because a girl like that wouldn't marry him, the family wouldn't marry him. On the other hand, she was 28. So that's not young either. In fact, in those days, that's like 88. And so maybe, you know, maybe, uh, what's the right word? You know, the family's willing to settle for him. Uh, Now, there is a famous story uh, I heard long ago. That's a very good story. I think I told you before. In connection with this, which could explain things, that I knew that he married this Ashkenazi girl, uh, Judith Cohn, her father was the famous Levi Baron Cohn. If you, uh, now I'm going to speak in halachic terms. Uh, Levi Baron Cohn was Dutch from Amsterdam. He moved to England, and that's where he spent his career. In Amsterdam, it was a little frumer. And remember, he's Ashkenazi, not Sephardi. Things were a little frumer than they were in London. <laughs> and when he moved in the 1780s, I think it was, to, uh, to London... So, you got the bad weather and the rain all the time. And so, the Shiloh is what about what's the story with umbrellas on Shabbos? No one had dealt with this Shiloh. Now, in England, all the Jews were using umbrellas, and the basic attitude was like this Fregnischken Shilas, don't ask no questions, because as a matter fact, this is trafe. You know, if you ask somebody what's with an umbrella on Shabbos, they'll say no, and then you turn over. It's better, don't ask. Okay, don't ask, don't tell. Um, the Rabbonim, even in London, you know, we're already used to that. But this guy was a little frummer, and so he wrote a shout out to the Noda Behuda. I don't know what his Chikras was, but he wrote a shout to the of Yehuda. It's in the of Yehuda. Levi Baron come and it became a classic because he asked him what's the story with um umbrellas? And that's where the Noda Behuda very famously poskin that umbrellas are also in Shabbos is like a oh hell, right? Which is an unusual svarah. You could certainly agree disagree with it. There's a very famous Hassam Sofer, a generation later, who said, I disagree with it, but since the view said it's I back him. You know, saying that's why we don't do umbrellas. Well, when this came out, was published, everybody in London got really P.O. to the guy, who asked you, you know, you from Ak, you make things also for us, you idiot, you jerk, you know, what are you, you know, holier than now, and so on and so forth, and it really ticked people off. You know, like once you go nobody likes somebody like that, you know, to go and, and, and uh what's the right word, you know, stick their nose in the business. And so they like boycotted him, you understand? As so nobody wants to do business with him, certainly nobody wants to marry his kids, etc. etc. And he complained. The story is, he complained, no doubt. He says, I'm getting a uh, boycott over here, you know, ostracized. And no to be heard said, Listen, it can't be That you do a firm thing, it's a bad end. I don't know what the short end is, short story is, but the long story has got to be good. The long story has got to be good. And, uh... That's how it was for a while. But then, a few years later, um, the French Revolution broke out. Then it means there's a war between England and France for 25 years. England had to tremendously increase the size of the Navy. This is when the British Navy rocked. You know, the Battle of Trafalgar and all. They wiped out the French fleets. Uh... That means that the British Navy, from the business perspective, was a big business. They needed a lot of stuff. And this guy, I forgot how, had some in with the navies. He became the supplier for the ships. So he made him a millionaire. So that was the first part of the bracha. became a millionaire from, the, from supplying the, the British Navy, which, which tremendously expanded. And um, it's so Jewish. You know, here's the Admiral Hornblower, and here's the Jewish guy supplying it. Anyway... Uh, And what about the daughters? So the local guys didn't want to marry her. She ended up marrying, what do you do? You marry a refugee. You know, she married a refugee. Um, A guy just moved to London, couldn't speak English very well. But you know, you want to marry somebody else? And marry a refugee. The name of the refugee was Rothschild. (laughs) Nathan Mary Rothschild, who became the zillionaire. Right? But that was the younger daughter, uh, um, uh, Hannah, Henrietta. But what about the older girl? And she was from her. And Rothschild said, I guess she's too from from her brothers. Too from. And um uh, then he said like this. Here's another guy who's down and out. Uh and uh Montefiore. So marry him. And so she ended up marrying Montefiore, so basically his daughters married the richest guys. Because that's the story. So it landed on his feet. But the point is that uh, And if you Google Judas Montefiore, by the way, you'll see she was a beautiful girl. So I don't know why she wasn't married by the age of 28, unless there's some story along the lines I just suggested. But uh, anyhow, that means that now our hero, uh, we got married at 28, that 1812. So from then on, he's a, a brother-in-law, was an up-and-coming zillionaire. Because the Rothschild, you know, was about to launch. Let's put it this way the Rothschild made a fortune. The biggest and most hush of all the Rothschild was Nathan May Rothschild of London, the five brothers. And so, um, Nathan Rothschild told Montefiore, You'll be my stockbroker, but don't get screwed over, you know. Now, let's learn your lesson, don't get taken in by phonies. And so, all of a sudden, Montefiore got himself uh, a broker's license again, and he was now a uh. Stock, uh, you know, like the broker for a a rising firm. Let's put it this way. (laughs) I could think of a worse thing than to be the broker for Rothschild. you get it? So he made money that way. And then uh, he and his brother in their 40s, right? So, you know, when we got a little bit older, they actually started investing, doing business together. And they, uh, this is very Jewish, They looked for something nobody else was in, new new technologies. And they were successfully investing in the new technology, which was gas lights. That's when Europe started to have street lights uh, with gas lighting. And so it's a profitable thing. And then eventually they went into life insurance. And so the long and the short of it is, here's a guy who made his millions, millions, in his 30s and 40s. Okay. So far, the story I told you is a, it's just an interesting business story. What does it have to do with, with Judaism so much? I mean, there's a guy who started out. He didn't go to college. He didn't go to high school. He learned, you know, as a young teenager, he's working in from the bottom up. He he's, he made his mistakes. He got messed over in that scandal. You know, but he, he landed on his feet, so to speak. He got married, married, married to a Jewish girl, a, a well-to-do Jewish girl. As a matter of fact, you might say like this. His Icker thing was marrying brother-in-law Rothschild, but she didn't come from a poor family either. And uh, eventually, he was able to use these connections to make serious money. Um, the thing is that uh, they didn't have kids. kids. Um, that's number one. Number two, she was from. Uh, now, I don't know exactly how from, because I don't know. They, let's put it this way. From day one, she was definitely to the right of him. Uh, I'm not saying she turned him overnight into a Shomer Shabbos and all the rest of it, but she definitely acted as a powerful magnet in that direction their whole life. Okay? She happened to be one of these girls that say they would do a passionate video or something like that, you know. Um for Yiddish Kite. In a famous story that um and she left a diary. And those of you out there are interested in women's role in Jewish history, if you just Google Judas Montefiore, you'll find online her her famous book, um, extensive diary, and she can see from perspective of a Jewish woman what life is like in the nineteenth century, it's extremely interesting. Um, and she came what we call today a classy background. And the famous story is, and this has to do with the three weeks in Tishabov, that she took Tishabov seriously. Um not surprising. The family I described would take things more seriously. And she was sitting on a on a, on a a little bench when the famous British Admiral Sir Sidney Smith came to talk to the father about business for the Navy. So it was a Tisha B'Av. And he said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm sitting here because we're mourning Beis HaMikdash and Titus destroyed the temple, all the rest of it. And the Admiral was very impressed. I forget, he said something like, you know, if you feel this way, I'm sure it'll come back. Something along those lines. It's a famous mice and you can look at say so You can google this if this is something that interests you So you see from early on she was a passionate, okay passionate um, Now she didn't cover hair you understand? Know, those was a high class and all that, but she's very strongly uh, Jewish now, um, but also She's a rich British woman. Okay. She's upper class like one of these movies, you know She has servants and things like that. So it's just an interesting combination usually when they get rich they get less from in her case this was not the case now um i'm sure it was a problem that they didn't have any kids i think he had some illegitimate children inside he had a a, a years ago i read a biography of him uh by a niece great niece or something like that not from of course and she mom was she was crazy she went and looked up all the records to find out if he followed illegitimate children by the by the maids and all this kind of stuff it was interesting to me she would do that, but it doesn't matter for our story. Um, because from then on, I can tell you right now, from then on, you know, he at least doubled his Shabbos observance, and at least doubled his synagogue attendance, and that sort of thing. Although he wasn't a, uh, you know what I mean, uh, super firming by any chance. Why would he be? He didn't go to yeshiva, he didn't go to day school. You get He grew up, as I said before, through a school of hard knocks. He's Portuguese-Jewish by background, so he's very ethnically Jewish. But don't expect him to be, you know what I mean, uh, the Arizal or something like that. Now, um, this must have been painful to these enemy not have children. Uh, they got married when they are both 28. So that's a double pressure, especially on a girl. Right, especially on the girl, 28. And it didn't work, she didn't have any kids. Uh, so you have a funny situation. They're trying, they're trying, they're trying. In that department, there's no success. Financially, they're getting more and more money. You understand? I'm sure if you ask them, they would rather make less money of have children, but that's the way it worked. So financially, and therefore socially, he's rising. But unfortunately, in this department, there was a problem. Uh, there's a tragedy. And the result, where I'm going with is that when they were in their 40s, and I would say like this, the last possible years they could have kids, because it would be 1827 so be he would be 40 they're both be 43 agreed so um, they did something unusual and they made a visit to Eretz Israel uh, this is not what people did first of all you had the disease the malaria the cholera and all this other junk. second of all there was no law and order at that time in Israel the druze are running around the the crime was crazy it just wasn't done life was very difficult the only Jews who moved there were the real frumies, the Hasinim and the Misnagdim and the Sephardim, who strictly came there for very firm reasons. And you had to learn, you know, how to uh, you know, live within the difficult situations that was Palestine at that time. Very small population, three, four 400,000 people in the whole Israel. You hear what I said? Three, four 400,000 people in the whole Israel. There was like nobody there. Now, um, he came, now he's a millionaire. So when he goes with his wife, it, his wife, in 1827, they're both 43. Uh, he, and that was in the old days when you t- used to land and you had to spend two weeks in quarantine. You know, now you will understand it's because of Corona. In Israel, they're doing this Mavish now. You know, you can't remember, you couldn't come to Israel and only spend a week in the in, the, in the hotel. In the Corona Hotel, all this other kind of business. This whole thing with the Magaifa was, was standard pr- practice in the 1800s. And he and his wife, I remember, they was in, in, in uh, Beirut, I think it was. That's where he landed and then you have to hire, he's loaded, so you hire a private security firm, as we would call today, guards to protect you when you travel on the road and all the rest of it, from the robbers, and uh, they visit Israel, Yosheleim, Hebron, and so on and so forth, and uh, I'm sure, like I said before, he's 43, she's 43, they're praying for a miracle to have a baby, well it didn't happen, but just being in Eretz Israel itself, uh It was a transformative experience right Uh, this is uh, British Portuguese you it's the era of romanticism that's when Sir Walter Scott is writing all the novels just to see the old places uh, you know it made a tremendous rush on him and uh, as a result you know uh, he was macabre on himself to become more from Um, and he did And so for the rest of his life, from the age of 43, and he died at 100, he became a Shomer Mitzvah. Okay? I mean, he took it seriously. Now, there's no question in my mind the wife was pushing. Right? Because that's who she really was. So it wasn't like he's, you know, make her do anything. He's finally coming into conformity with what she wanted anyway. Okay? Uh, Perhaps, I'm just guessing over here, this is totally a guess, perhaps he figured, Nebuch, you know, I'm not able. You know, we can't have children together. I wanted to feel good. I know she would like it if I'm more Jewish. You know, that might possibly have been it also. No question about it. She had a tremendous influence in him, but she didn't have enough influence to turn him overnight when they got married uh, to become from. But that's what happened. So from the age of forty-three, when when he came back uh, from Palestine, and again, you know, he had a lot of adventures there, and on the way back, uh. There was a war going on i don't get it all the little details don't matter you know he brought the dispatches back from the battle of numberino that doesn't you don't even know what that is so um he came back and like i said transformed now he's 43 within a few years he was making more and more money but by the time he hit like say 50 or so which would be 1834 okay So he starts to ask the Cohellas questions, which is, you know, what do I do with the money? right? In other words, not leaving behind to my children. What what do I do with the rest of my life? A midlife crisis, I guess. And here's where where it gets interesting. He and his wife, he bought an estate. We were still there in Ramsgate. You know, rich he was. He could live the life... Of an English gentleman, like you see in the Jane Austen novels, except that he's kosher. <laughs> right? And by the way, if you're Montefiore, millionaire, so you can have a private shochet, and he will have one, and he'll have a private rabbi later on when he goes on his travels. To you know, you you you, you can afford all this, okay? And uh, the result is that he basically said, like this: I'm gonna I'm gonna increase my interest. In Judaism and Jewish affairs and this is what makes him a historical character uh, we're talking the 1830s now I want to be very clear about this this is Great Britain and England England was an unusual situation I would say during the century between 1815 and 1915 or 1814 1914 in certain ways England was the most important or most powerful uh, European country in other ways not but in certain ways there was no question that England had the navy. And England was the richest by far. Uh, England could always, you know, switch sides because the European countries always went against the other. So England could join one side and join another side and affect the outcome, which is what they did. Uh, and so England was unusually powerful. It's also true that England was, I'm talking about by the standards of Europe, not anti-Semitic. Okay? not the governments i wouldn't say they loved the jews because that's not true but relatively speaking to the way europe operated england was like the best country in fact this is actually true since the 1600s since oliver Cromwell. if you want to get down to it compared to the other european states for a whole bunch of reasons i don't want to get into uh what's called the georgian england so politically and otherwise the government did not persecute the jews um, the Jews did not have civil rights there. They couldn't vote. Uh, they, they couldn't go to Oxford and Cambridge. A few other things like that. Who cares? Like I always say, raise your hand if you voted last time. You know, a lot of people don't vote. Uh, and you can't run for office. Big deal. But you could be in business. You can live wherever you want. You know, There were no practical laws of persecuting you. It was a very, very important. Now, um, as a result, England was in a position... To affect events and affairs in the 1800s more than other countries, and uh, from the 1820s, let's say, to and afterwards, so uh, one of the most important figures in the British politics was Lord Palmerston. Was a very unusual guy, and uh, he did not he did not dislike Jews. He liked Jews. I have no idea why. Let's put it this way: he wasn't unfavorable to them and maybe even favorable. One of the Cheshbonahs was that um, the Jews might be a way to help England get prestige in the Middle East because Middle East was ruled by the Turkish Empire. The European countries, each one for its own reasons, had certain rights and, and, and uh, privileges in the Turkish Empire based on the religious affiliation of uh, of, um, of the Christian subjects in the Turkish Empire. Notice in simple English. If you're, uh, if you're Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox, you're sort of like protected by the Russians because they're Russian Orthodox. If you're Catholic, then historically you're protected by the French. So the French have a say in the Catholic stuff. Uh, so if you're England, there's nobody. The Church of England Italian, it doesn't exist in the Middle East, but the Jews do. And so you can use the Jews as a, as a tactic for that. But to be perfectly honest, I think that um, Palmerston and these guys we're the beginning of what we call philo-semitism which is the Christian type of Jerry Falwell business, in which certain English guys—it's a complicated story. I don't want to spend too. It's actually a fascinating story. I should one time do a talk on this, but for certain reasons, uh, either like the you know like a uh, Pastor Hagee and all that, they see there's a coming for Jesus or something like that, or for other reasons, they actually were in favor of the Jews moving to Israel. Um, Montefiore will be friends with the guy Churchill it's uh, very distantly related to Winston Churchill and uh, he'll be the uh, British consul in, in Damascus and Churchill will say, oh we should set up a state of Israel here's how you should do it the Jews have to form a Zionist movement I'm talking 1840 it's crazy you know so the British were different very different than all the other Europeans in this department okay no other European country would even think along these lines every other European country was profoundly anti-semitic in one way or another the british were the least so. And so Montevideo was an interesting situation because here's a guy in the 1830s who um is about to retire at 50 or so around that time. As I said before he's a ba- uh, not a bachelor he, he doesn't have a children. He's loaded and his investments are paying off because the gas and all the others were, this was all bringing in money. These were cash cows. The uh, the the fire insurance uh, you know he he he, he and Rothschild. Were investors in a lot of profitable enterprises. So the money's coming in. What do you do with the money? And like I said before, he bought himself like his little uh, country estate, a small palace, and so on and so forth. So he's living fine, um, you know, as far as all that's concerned. But what do you do? Now, one, one place is you get involved in the affairs of the Jewish community, if that's one way of doing Jewish politics. So London has the Spanish-Portuguese synagogue. What's it called? The Devis Mark Synagogue, which is there now. Uh, people outside of England don't know about it. Um, I was there a couple years ago, two years ago, just before the corona, 2019. And uh, that was the first time I was ever there. And uh, you see, they, they, they have roped off Montefiore Seed and so forth. See, let's put it this way. You can always be a big shot in the local shoal and, uh, you know, throw your weight around and get the kibbutum. That's one kind of politics. But he thought bigger, and he did do that. And he became an important person in the Sephardic Jewish community, the Board of Govern- uh, board of Deputies. And, um, you know, and he gave a lot of tzedakah and things like that so that now allowed him to have a say. Here's the interesting thing. This is when Reform Judaism starts to start. Starts to start. Um, it had already been Germany, and there was a reform movement of a small kind in England. Montefiore is responsible, along with a couple other guys like him, for preventing the rise of Reform Judaism because they were fiercely opposed to it. He's a Sephardic Jew. They ain't got no time for the Reform. <laughs> you understand? Not the Reform of the German style. Second of all, once you came to Eretz Israel, he was like enraptured with Eretz Israel, And he could foresee in his mind, you know, coming Mashiach and things like this. in a romantic, this way. The Reformer against Israel. They said, no, the Jews should drop any reference to the sea and all the rest. You don't want to hear that. You know, saying? and so as a result, he became the number one opponent of Reform Judaism in England. And during his lifetime, he was a very powerful force against the Reform. In fact, the opposite—he was a big pusher for the Chief Rabbi. You'll say to me this: the Chief Rabbi is Ashkenaz, yeah, but he, his wife was Ashkenaz, so he, he could, you know, play both games. And um, he's very one of the people responsible that uh, Nathan, uh, what's his name, uh, the Chief Rabbi Adler. Should become the rabbi there, and they fought a lot of battles against the reform, so this is very unusual in England the rich were against the reform that's why reform didn't rise in Germany, these other places the rich were pro-reform that's why the reform was able to rise that's so a money thing okay uh and he was a bitter um and here's the funny part the reform is trying to say like this: we are the modern, we are the real the uh, uh, european uh we're the ones that want to take the Judaism out of the ghetto. And make it, uh, uh, you know, respectable. Well, here's Montefiore, who's very respectable, is loaded, he's certainly very English, and he's saying, keep up the, Re- the Orthodox. Right? So all during his life, he was a big opponent of the Reform. And when they passed a the law in the British Parliament that, you know, the, the Jews can perform uh, 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 weddings and things like that, uh, the Reform said, well, what about us? And I remember Montefiore blocked it again and again and again until Palmerston, the Prime Minister, called him in and said, listen Sir Moses, look, uh, we can't even get uh, peace in the Church of England. How are you going to get peace in the Judaism? You know what I mean? And so in the end, he had to give in and let the reform have a little bit, a little bit. But he was big against that. Now, in 1837, uh, Victoria became the queen. Um... And then you had the Victorian era, and Palmerston rose to be a big macher. He was the central figure, I would say, for the first twenty-five years of Queen Victoria's uh, reign. They had a, a love-hate relationship. There are movies about this and so forth. Um, but that means that Palmerston was the guy in charge of, of the foreign policy of the British governments. Let me put it that way. And again, there's a lot to talk about that. I don't want to get s- sidetracked. As a result. The stage was set for Montefiore to play a big role. Because here he is, he was friends with Palmerston. He was friends with a lot of British guys. Not simply because he was rich. He made it his business, you know, to meet and befriend all these people. uh, For social reasons, but mainly, I mean, if he kept kosher all the rest of it, what kind of social reasons? You know, you're not going to go eat by somebody. (laughs) But you figure it might be good for Claudius, which was true. And his big uh, break, as it were, came when he's, uh, I guess, 36. Now, let me just think about 46. And it broke out the Damascus Affair in, in 1840, uh, where a guy was missing, and they said the Jews killed him. He used the blood. Uh, and the guy was missing with a French priest. And so France, as a country, said the Jews did it. Can you believe this? France, as a country, in 1840, when everything's supposed to be enlightened, you understand it's after the French Revolution, all the rest of it. Right? But so powerful was the Catholic influence and the anti-Semitic influence, they said the Jews did it. Uh, they told the Turkish government, which ruled Damascus, the Jews did it. So the Turkish did what they always do. They arrested a bunch of Jews, beat the hell out of them, got a confession, and then they said the Jews did it. <clears throat> you see? And the problem is, it was one of those moments like we have now on the Internet where anti semitism is very hot, right? Very hot. And so all the newspapers in Europe, uh, in Italy, and France, and Germany, and Austria, in Russia, obviously, and all the other countries said the Jews did it. And it, was, it was a, what do you call it, feeding frenzy, isn't that what we call it? A media frenzy. <clears throat> it's called the media frenzy. England also, the London Times, all this kind of stuff. And everybody just said, oh, the Jews did it. Which goes to show you, in 1840, the Jews are killing, the, the charges, the Jews are killing Christian people to use the blood to make matzo, okay, in 1840. Not in 40, but in 1840. So the Jews are all horrified, they know what to do, but they're afraid to keep their mouth, to, to open their mouth, as always. And uh, the one guy in Europe who said it's all bull was Palmerston. It's interesting. I think even the British ambassador or something like that, the consul, said, it really, I investigate it, it's really true. And Palmer says that, if you believe that baloney, you're fired. <laughs> he was quite a guy. And this is 1840. And Montefiore, um, who, like I say, was his late 40s, stepped up and he said like this, this is an outrage against the Jewish people. And um, I want to do something about it. And he went to to, to um, Palmerston. And Palmerston says, yes, I will back you. Okay. I'll get a letter from the queen and all this stuff. you go to the Middle East and fix this up. And so here came the famous uh, voyage. Montefiore went to the Middle East. Uh, He had already visited Israel two or three times, I think, by then. And um, when he went to the Middle East, uh, this is complicated. At the time the charges were made that the Jews kidnapped and killed a guy, Syria and Palestine were actually ruled by Egypt. This is very hard to explain, but very briefly, uh, the Turkish Empire was the Middle East, including Egypt. But the ruler of Egypt under the Turks was Mehmed Ali. And Mehmed Ali is a famous person in history. He built up Egypt like almost like an independent country. And he westernized the country and that sort of thing. Uh, He was an impressive guy. And eventually, he said like this, why should I be under Turkey? I'm more powerful than them. I'll take over Turkey. And he could do it too. And he had a son, Ibrahim Pasha, who was a good general. And, uh, and he basically rebelled against Turkey. And believe me, he was going to conquer Turkey. Instead of the Turkish Empire, it was going to be the Egyptian Empire. He was simply that capable. And he had a European-trained army and so forth. At one time, he invaded and conquered Saudi Arabia. I mean, this is a, people don't know about this. He was an impressive guy. And um, therefore was under his administration... That the British, that the charges of the Damascus affair were made about killing the the guy for the Uh, But right at that time, what happened was that the European countries intervened because for their own reasons, they didn't want Turkey to go out of business. And so they kind of forced Mehmed Ali to retreat and go back to Egypt. It's called the uh, Near Eastern Crisis of 1840. Uh, It's a long, complicated business. But anyway... So the point is, if you want to get this done right, you have to get the uh, charges dropped against the Jews by Mehmed Ali, by the Egyptians uh, which who were in charge, and then by the Sultan of Turkey. So that either way, whether you say that Syria and Damascus belong to Turkey or Egypt, each one said the Jews didn't do it. And so um, he went to Egypt. Now the French... Uh, Jews said it like this, if you're going along, we're going along, they sent Adolf Cremieux, who was the leading French Joe and it uh, went to, uh, to to Egypt. Now, if Montefiore simply went as a private Jew, they tell him, go to hell. But he went as a friend of, of, of um, Palmerston, or like a British ship, British battleship or whatever, with a letter from the British government saying, take care of this guy. Which means didn't in my strongest way around. And, um... Uh, the result is... Hold on one second. What was I saying? So, um... Palmerston didn't mind helping him. And so, the point is... When he came to Egypt... He wasn't just coming as some Jew. Or even some some Rich Jew. But he was coming as... An international figure. Um... Seems like he's friends with Queen Victoria, and that was baloney, but that was part of the legend, you know. Uh, He certainly was friends with Palmerston. And if you want British government to like you, and you're a Middle Eastern player like Mechman Ali, basically it's like this, what the heck, you know, it's just a couple of Jews. And so he said like this, oh, okay, if you say they didn't do it, no problem. Uh, You know, I, I, I can arrange that. And so Montefiore leveraged... His image as somebody powerful and really had no power at all but he had friendship with uh, Palmerston uh, to bring international attention to um, uh, to use the light of international attention to help the Jews because the guys who were arrested some were already killed but some were still in prison being tortured he got them out that's the bottom line and so he went on a mission of rescue And he got it rescued by using the fact that he looks like he's powerful with the British um, to make it seem like the British government is seriously backing him to get these Jews off. And let's face it. uh, What did the Egyptian government care whether a couple Jews are more in jail, out of jail? And so it's not worth the international uh, uh, stuff. And so they let him go. So the bottom line is, they hear a bunch of Jews, they're being tortured to death and all, they used to bastinado on them, as in you know, Turkish, you know, you hold the guy up on a chain, and you take off the shoes, and they start whacking him on the soles of the feet with uh, wooden and iron sticks, okay, this is what the Jews were tortured, you get it? Now you understand, the Jews were just carbonas, the French were bastards, and therefore they wanted to use this as a chance to prove something against the Jews, and the Turks, or the Egyptians, didn't mind, these were just beat up a bunch of Jews, so who cares? And the fact that individuals getting tortured—that happens every day in the Middle East—it so happens that since this was a charge made against the Jewish people, because if you say that they're doing the blood libel, they're killing people for matzah, you're basically saying that's part of Judaism, that affected the Chol Yisrael. But of the whole Chol Yisrael, the only guy who stepped up to the plate was Montefiore to actually do something about it. The other just said, "Oh my, the sky is falling." Here's a guy. Now, granted, he was a millionaire. He was friends you know, with the right people. But he was willing to act. Okay? And he did do so. Now, he was well aware that he's getting in the front headlines in the New York Times. So it was also good for him. But so what? Now, once he got those guys out of jail, which was a a Yeshua, I mean, he can't help the ones that are dead, but the ones that got out of jail, then he went to Turkey. Because I told you, by this time, the Turks were retaking the Syrian-Palestine. And he went to the Sultan of Turkey. And again, he walks in. Remember, he's tall, dark, and handsome. He's wearing a British uniform, all the rest of it. It appears like he's representative of the British, even though he wasn't. But on the other hand, he definitely has like the journalists and the others following this. So he turned himself into a fake news story. Now, there's nothing wrong with what I'm saying. I'm saying that Latova, not Lara, He turned himself into a fake news story to help call Israel, And so the Sultan of Turkey who desperately needed British support because the Russians at that time were constantly trying to swallow up Turkey. That's the politics of the 19th century, especially 1840s, 1850s. Eventually, it erupted into the Crimean War. Just take it from me. The, 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 if, if England wouldn't have stopped them, Russia, for sure, would have easily conquered the whole Turkish Empire, in which case the history of the Middle East would be quite different. And so that was used to be called the Near Eastern Question or the Eastern Question. And so... The sultan Turkey will do anything it takes uh, to kiss up to the British if it doesn't involve any kind of real sacrifice. So Montefiore comes and goes, oh, I'm sure you're shocked that they said that these Jews killed a guy for the blood libel and all the rest for the matzo. sultan says, oh, I'm shocked. <laughs> and he says, then I want you, if it's okay with you, issue a decree that was not true. And so the sultan issued a decree that the, whoever did this is pardoned. And Montefiore says, no, don't say pardoned. That means they did it. Say they didn't do it. And so, okay, fine. So he issued another decree saying they didn't do it. It's a lie. Um, now, of course, the anti-Semites, the Christians, I guess, sure, Montefiore bought it off. You know, too much money. But what else could you do? The most you could do was get everything done to fix things, to mean Misak and things the best you could. And so the guys were let out of jail. And the government... Officially said, the the emperor, the sultan said that the whole thing was a lie. So let's put it this way, that was a triumph. He came back to Europe, and by the way, look, I don't blame him. The guy had no children. You know, this is his whole chias. He came back to Europe the long way, not the short way. Went through all the uh, Italy, Germany, all the rest. Of it. Wherever he went, the Jews, uh, you know, received him like a like a king. You understand? Oh, here's the guy to help the Jews and all the rest of it. And, you know, in Germany and in in France and in this place and that place, he had a tremendous reception. And so he burnished the image of the leading Jew in the world. Because, and I'm going to tell you something, this is the first time that I know of for many, many centuries that somebody stepped forward and said, I guess, I'm a Jew and I'm doing something for Israel. Usually the Rich guys, the Stadlon, even the good ones, were local. You know, in Poland, the Jewish leaders tried to prevent the Polish government from doing something bad to the Jews in Poland. In Austria, they tried to do this. the Austrian government shouldn't do something bad to the Jews in Austria. And in France, they shouldn't do something to the Jews in France and so forth. Nobody thought outside of their lone Dalai You get it? I don't know of anybody, because it didn't exist, who in uh, Poland or uh, Lithuania or something like that said, oh, go help the Spartan. This is place. Let the them they, they're on their own. And the them also, said, ah, you know, we're taking care of our own. We're not telling the Ashkenazim what to do. Here's a guy, because it's the 19th century, and you have the new, uh, the, you know, the, the train and the uh, steamboat. You know, There's a new world who says like this, I represent, I undertake to represent the Jewish people as such. And as a result, he became the address for anybody who wants to deal with something involving Kalal Yisrael. Such a thing had never existed. And without this germ, the beginning that I'm talking about, uh, you never would have had Israel. Because this is the beginning of people starting to think in broad, claustral terms, which was absolutely necessary for the founding of modern Israel and for anything good. I, I mean, those, I think it's a good thing. Uh, th- these organizations, the Zionists and then the Agud, the Aseni and the Agud and the other ones, they emerged out of uh, consciousness that was started by Montefiore in which somebody has to stand up and undertake to represent Claudius Row. Now, you're not elected. It's not possible to have elections. It's not physically possi- possible. The only thing you can do is you can say, I stand up, and by my actions, by serving the Jewish people, then the Jewish people exist. And by serving the Jewish people, I make myself like a leader or something like that. So you do it through through representation, through helping, stopping gezeris, and this became the pattern of his life. Right? For the rest of his life, 1840s, 50s, 60s, and so forth, he did the best he could. Now, he didn't know much about Judaism. Uh, he knew that, and so he hired, you know, with the money, he hired a guy, uh, Dr. Lev, who was a Talmud of the uh, Sofer, but also learned at 100 universities and knew like 50 languages. He was a, li- a crazy linguist. He was a from guy, you know, modern or a from guy. And he should be his, his uh, what's the right word? his Hebrew secretary, and his rabbi on hire. Get it? Anything he needs to know about Judaism or the guy would go with him on his travels. For example, when he went to Egypt and Turkey all the rest of it, he don't know this kind of stuff, but he's got this guy Liv. Right? And Liv can speak Arabic and can speak Turkish. and can speak, you know, Pazanian, whatever you want. Because he knew like a crazy number of languages. He just had... You know, yeshivas have these type of guys. <laughs> these weirdos that just know a lot on on, on one thing or the other. Uh, and he was a university graduate. And he remained together with Montefiore for the rest of his life. And any time some rabbi or some other group wrote to Montefiore in Hebrew and needed he, Hebrew correspondence, he gave it to the love. Because he can't write Hebrew. But he would tell him, you know, this is what I want to say. And you write it in nice Hebrew. So he he was an important person in their life. Now, the wife came along with everything. Because, listen, she's not children. She is part of his life. So the two of them went together to the Middle East. Right? And what you have to understand is, when they came to Egypt, let's say, and later to Turkey, the local Jewish community is treating them like a prince and a princess. When she goes to the Shoal, let me put it this way, when Montefiore would come for the rest of his life to a community, let's say, for example, Cairo, I'm just giving an example, or Istanbul, or anywhere, right? Or Rome. Oh, they would see him in the with covered in lacham. They put him in the front seats of the Miserach thing. The wife that she's from, she go to the ladies' section. They treat her like a queen. They put her in the front, you know, in the best section, sitting next to all the rich w- women. Each one considered a covered sits next to the other one. She was like a princess. You get it? And since the two of them were classy, because they did come... By this time, they were members of British you know, upper class financially. They projected... I don't know what the right word is. It's not royalty exactly, but you know what I'm saying, right? Classy, okay? And the Jews were thrilled with this because we didn't have anything like this, okay? Um, when I say we didn't have anything like this, you had rich Jews. In fact, you had tons of rich Jews in the 19th century. With the new economy that took over the technology that, that was launched in the 19th century, which is a revolutionary century in technology, that's when we had the railroad, the telegraph, the telephone eventually. You know that, you know, it's it's it's, it's uh, extraordinary uh, what happens in the 19th century. All that's money, if you get on the right side of investment, and the Jews did. And so, uh, yeah, tons of Jewish billionaires and zillionaires, almost none of them were Isaac and anything Jewish. This is the tragedy of Kalisro. Montefiore is the exception, that's what I'm talking about. You get it? Even the Rothschilds, believe me, what the Rothschild did for Jewish causes was like, Five percent of what they did for Geisha causes, and he, and we're happy for the five percent, you know what I'm saying? We're happy for the five percent, but it's nothing near what they could have done. This is nothing so much, we call it nothing so much, as the famous uh, discussion I mentioned before of what's called Golis Hashchina. If you look in the Node of Yehuda, and also in the uh, what Ebschutz, and what he called the um, uh, what's it called again? You know his drushes. So. Um, they talk about Golis as a, as, a, as a Lurianic concept, as a Kabbalistic concept. Uh, because after all, the Shekhinel doesn't go to Golis. So, you know, so what does it mean? It's a describing a certain Hanhaga in which, you know, this is how the Nobihuda puts it. When things are good and the Shchina is not in Golis, then Yisrael gets Rove of the Shefa from heaven, and the Garden get mute. So we get the main, and they get the leftovers. But when there's a Golis situation going on, like now, the guy and get the rove of the chef, and we get the leftovers. We get the leftovers. You see? So they get 90% of the good stuff and we get 10% or, or 95% we get 5%. This is the meaning tabalistic of Golosh Hashchina. That's already mystical concepts. I don't think you have to be very mystical about it. We have a perfect example of the millionaires. There's a zillion Jewish millionaires. Nothing goes for Jewish causes. And certainly not for Torah causes. Certainly not for that. The few millionaires we have here and there to give to from causes... And now there's more. But still a drop in the bucket what's out there. You get it? Drop buckets out there. Uh, I have to turn this off for a second. Okay. Um, So as I was saying, um, Demetrius is different. Uh, All the other people, uh, there's a ton of philanthropic money out there. Jewish. A ton. Uh, My friends, we all know this. Not, it's not if you're talking about money wise, it's not necessary, um, for anybody to pay any day school tuition. You got enough zillionaires out there, millionaires and billionaires, Jewish, uh, I say from, but including all Jews, that if they wanted to, they could fund the chinach in such a way, if it was a priority, it would be free. Just to give you an example, and I know there's a million parents going like this, "Ah, if only, (laughs) and it's true, LMI. They're not going to give the money for that. They don't see that. Now, they'll give money for saving the whales. They'll give money for Black Lives Matter. They'll give money for the um, symphony orchestra and all the rest of it. Just look. Uh, but they won't give money for Jewish stuff. And when they give money for Jewish stuff, it'll be something like, you know, LGB or something like that. This is how this is the Gal Sashchim. And so we rarely have somebody who gives a serious attention and money for something Jewish, let alone something from. In the 19th century, in the in, in modern time, uh, you had, like I say, plenty of well-to-do people. They didn't want to bring up the Jewish stuff because they were ashamed of it or whatever. And, uh, you know, they would give a lot of money for all kind of Christian causes and hospitals and stuff like that, nothing Jewish. Montefiore the opposite. He's the only one, and I think his wife had a lot to do with that. Right? And Montefiore um, was the opposite. He gave 95% of his attention and money for Jewish, 5% for the Goyish. He gave for non-Jewish causes. He contributed to hospitals and, uh, and, you know, uh, uh, charity causes and things like that. In fact, I would say he did it very intelligently with a kamona. Uh, I remember, for example, um, there was a famous um, incident, an uprising against the Christians in Lebanon uh, in eighteen sixty. And the Druze, I think, right or something killed a lot of Christians. And Montevideo was the first guy to say like this, I think they should set up a, a fund to help the Christians and I'm giving the first thousand dollars or whatever it was. That was a of Hashem. No see one of the shows, see I get for God you should things also. I remember um I was just smart. Um I remember you know, when he had something with the church in Canterbury, whatever he gave money for you know, they had a public uh, raising money for the church, he contributed for the church. Uh this is always used in the um, 19th century response, I remember there's a Mata Levy from uh rabbi in Frankfurt, the opposite of Breuer's, you know, the the, the Kehillah rabbi, uh, uh, Mordecai Horowitz, he is, I just saw years ago. I wish I would have stolen it at that time when I saw it, uh, that uh, book. Uh, it's that way out of print, Mata Levy. And uh, it was a question about giving money also for a church in England or something like that. He said, well, Mata did it. You know, now I'm not saying... Is halachically this way or the other uh, is what to discuss you know is it is Christianity of it is etc etc but but he did it, it it was a smart move from the PR point of view that a very prominent Jew is very happily giving money for the church you get it he was a smart cookie in that department and uh, and things like that things like that so that way he'd be able to say listen I want you to help a Jewish cause I help yours I help yours now um but nevertheless i can tell you it's five percent 95 percent with for jewish this made him unique i'm sorry to say it made him unique i wish it would be i wish it'd be typical not atypical but that's who he was and um and that's what he did the rest of his career now he became therefore a myth as a result of the damascus affair and he tried to uh leverage this myth and i'm in favor of that to help jews elsewhere so for example in 1840s, he had Tsar Nicholas of Russia, who was a mamers, Mamzer Shane Kamo and uh, Nicholas I. Boy, was he bad news. And at one point, they wanted to kick the Jews away from the border and deport all kinds of Jewish families. But no, let's put ruining financially and otherwise, tens of thousands of Jewish families. And Montefiore went to Russia in 1846 to see the Tsar. Now, again, it's a bluff, right? Montefiore is coming, well knew, but he's a prominent British Jew. And he relied on the fact that Russia then, like now, hopes that they can perpetrate their shtick away from public view. So he represents the point of view of pitiless publicity. I'm coming, I'm directing the world's attention to what's happening in Russia. The czars of Russia all want to say like this, we're very enlightened, the Jews are bad, we're actually helping the Jews by uh, persecuting them, expelling them from the border regions and all the rest of all this other uh, bull, but nevertheless, here comes a guy from England, and what could he do he the government of england is not going to get into a mess with russia or a bunch of jews he can only come and remember he was tall dark and handsome so there famous paintings of this because nicholas the first also was tall dark and handsome see there's two guys each one's like six foot two six six foot three and he's wearing a russian uniform and nicholas and, and montevideo came in a british uniform and so on and so forth and um what's he saying he's the only thing he can do is to say like this he says uh, I come to study the Jewish question. I'm sure you, the Emperor of Russia, have the best welfare of the Jews in mind. Uh, but maybe we can modify this. So I appeal to your well-known charity. No, he so have to shoot the bull. With them. The Tsar of Russia was very uncomfortable with this. And he famously said, he said, listen, if all the Jews were like you, it would be a different story. Well, okay, if all the guys were like you, it would be a different story. And nothing really came from it. But nevertheless... It helped the Jews in Russia that now the Russians are aware for the first time ever that people are watching what they're doing to the Jews that didn't mean to change exactly what the Tsar did but to some degree it exercised a um, restraint and whatever it did was a positive and eventually it set the stage for what the Jews did later in the 1800s which is to really use publicity to try to pressure the Russian government not to persecute the Jews. We led to very complicated results. Uh, but before that, it wasn't even a shot, nobody paid attention. Every country has the right to screw over its people the way it wants to. America has black slavery, the British had their slaves, the Russians have the Jews, this country has this, that one has that. I get to kill my people and torture them, you get to kill your people, and everybody's happy. <laughs> For the first time now, you see the Jewish people, in the person of Montefiore, are calling the attention of the world press and the world in general. To what's happening somewhere else. He can't do more than that. So, it's not, I can't say, as he used to write in the books when I was little, but well, as a result, Montefiore stopped the Gezer and all the rest of it. Didn't exactly stop the Gezer, but he gave the Jews a tremendous chizik, mentally, by saying there's somebody out there that cares and is calling the world's attention to this. This is called shtad You understand? Uh, and not only that, but he traveled through Europe to get to St. Petersburg to the capital of the Russian Empire uh, on land and so he um, and and when he's traveling I mean he's a, a rich guy and so he went with an escort of soldiers and junk like that uh, and so here's a guy that goes to Germany and then if you know the map you go along the Baltic Road you know all through East Prussia into Lithuania Latvia, Estonia and then right past the it St. Petersburg so he passed through Lithuania and Latvia, all the Jewish communities, the Pale of Settlement, in the 1840s in the middle of the persecutions by Tsar by Nicholas I. Uh, if you want to read something interesting from a firm perspective, if you get the book by uh, Yaakov Alevi Lipschitz, who I did a podcast on once, that was the secretary of Khan, and he was like a one-man, his own personal Haredi historian, and he re- writes from memory, when he was a kid, Montefiore came through, it was, like, a, unbelievable. They said, there's some rich guy whose best friends will King Victoria. You know, they, they built legends up. And uh, he himself saw the carriage go through. Um, I think it was in Vilkermir. He saw the carriage go through his uh, town on the road, and the kids ran from the cheder to see. And it and he had a big fancy carriage because, you know, he wanted to travel in as much comfort as possible. Remember, going on a, a roads with the horse and wagon was very bumpy. It was no fun. Now they had springs. I guess if you have the richest possible carriage, it's the, it's the most comfortable possible. And he came with his wife. And he had, by this time, he'd already been knighted by the British government. And so he had a thing, you know, or something like that. I forget what it was. Or words to that effect. And uh, if you look it up in the Zichron in the first part, uh, he has all the long chapters on it. And um, it just thrilled the Jews. You understand? And the fact that he was a Shem or Shabbos was unbelievable, Kish Hashem. Because here's a guy coming from England, dressed English, modern, all the rest of it, but as a kosher food. And so when Montefiore would come, to the, the, the trip itself made a tremendous impression. When he would come through a, a village or something like that in Eastern Europe, is unbelievable. And if, it was, if they were lucky, if it was Sunday moor, uh, Monday morning or Thursday morning, they say, I guess he was stopping down in the show. Wow. He said, if it's Shabbos, she's also going to come to the shul. Double wow. If it's Monday, Thursday morning, they can get some money out of him. It's a very famous story. Again, in the Zechon Yaakov, he stopped in some little town, and it was Monday morning. And he's like, This, okay, where's the show? Whoa. And they came to the naturally, Gemalia, and then they're, <laughs> you know? And Montefiore to show off, he said, "I guess I will contribute to this village the amount of money equal to the uh, to what the Gabe owns, because the Gabe is the richest guy in the village, you know." And they wanted to look up the guy's books. And he was broke. <laughs> you know, he was uh, fooling everybody. But there are many minds I guess. When she, believe me, when, when the women to see uh, Judas Montefiore. No, how old would she be? She was the same age as him. So it's 1846. So she was about 61, 62 years old. Uh, still very handsome woman, dressed like a prince. You know, I mean, in a, like an upper-class British. So by the standards of Eastern Europe, they're like whoa. And she got servants, you know, with 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 and uh, wearing livery. You know what I mean, with the gold buttons and things like this. And she's a from lady. She go to the lady section. They would say, "Tell them" and things like this. People write about, "Oh, my mother got to shake her hand." My goodness. So they became the myth of themselves. You see? And it's famous that the Maskilim in Russia got together to appeal to Montefiore You he should help the Russian government break down the Haredim because they're the ones that are blocking the progress. Look, you yourself are a perfect example that someone can be a Shomer Shabbos and be modern. Yeah? And Montefiore was not the smartest guy in the block when it comes to all the Haredi stuff. And he said, yeah, why shouldn't you have Limurichol and all the rest of it? That drove the Ravonim crazy. It's a very complicated story I don't want to go into now. Because uh, that'll take an hour and a half, it really will. But um, suffice it to say, that meeting in Warsaw in Vilna, suffice it to say, he did not solve the problem, uh, not at all. However, each side used them like you do when you have ideological debates. The Frum said, "Look, you don't have to be. What's what, what's wrong with you, you Maskil? You should be ashamed of yourself. Here's a guy who's made it in the world." And he says, Shemer Roshavis, he keeps kosher. His wife, you know, is a from lady. So you don't have to be un-from the way you say. The masculine played it the other way. He say, see, you can be a from Jew and be modern and read secular language, you know, speaking European languages and be a mensch like everybody else. You don't have to be such a me So this was, you know, a Selahamachlogist. But I want tell you one thing. Um... This author Yaakov Levi Lipschitz, who represents a very right-wing uh, Harediism, who wrote this 100 years ago, he s- s- did admit. He says, Wh- "Whatever kindness we had in Montefiore, we but all the other millionaires were just into themselves. Here's the one guy who cares about Kladisrael." Zehoish Moshe, l'fnei He was the first guy 100 years ago. Shabbat Tchuba told something which started a new era in Jewish history. He's the first one to say, Hashem Nisi, God is my, my flag. Because as big as he was, he put his ichor, um, on the uh, on the fate of Jews elsewhere. Uh, this is what he did uh, for the rest of his life. So, for example, when they kidnapped that kid in Italy in 1858, Edgar Martara, and, um, they, um, and they, that's a case where there's a Jewish family in Bologna and the parents went to Shoal, and then the maid just went and baptized the kid without permission, and the Catholic Church said, since he baptized him, he's got to grow up as a guy, and they wouldn't do it, and they kidnapped the kid and never saw the parents again. And Montefiore went to complain to the Pope. Now the Pope hated him, he hated Montefiore, and each one was dissing the other one. It was unsuccessful, Right? It was unsuccessful because Montefiore, at the end of the day, didn't have any power. All he could say is, I'm bringing, you know, public uh, opinion or something. Well, the Pope didn't care about public opinion. Now, it messed over his public opinion. And as a result, it triggered a bunch of events in Italy in which the Pope lost his political power. Because this happened in 1859, and a year or two later, you know, the new Italy emerged, which destroyed the power of the Pope. But I'm not going to say it's because of Montefiore. Uh, Nevertheless... He was he, he kept doing what I what I keep pointing out, which is to say to say I'm bringing publicity on what's happening or, or what you're doing. So it's all, to use modern terminology, it's like this. Uh, it's like uh, what am I thinking of? Yet yeah, everybody uses the cell phone to uh, uh, what's the word? You know, to put something on. You know, I I I use my phone to photograph what's happening and then you put it out there. Uh, escapes me. That's what everybody does. As soon as there's a fight or anything, everybody whips out their phones. So Montevideo was a 19th century phone. You see, that's the best you could do. Uh, he went to Romania one time when they're persecuting Jews there. He went to Morocco one time, persecuting Jews there. You know, sometimes able to help, sometimes wasn't able to help. But at least he personified, and nobody else did this, that somebody cares about the Khalil Israel. As a result, the Jewish people worshiped him. He got a tremendous reputation among the Jews everywhere. And they built him up and all the rest of it, maybe a little too much, but it doesn't matter. Um, And his historical significance was that he started something which eventually organizations picked up, which is there's a group of Jews that care about the Jewish people around the world because they're Jews. Now, uh, the organizations that started first were like, um, you know, the British Board of Deputies and the French Alliance and all the rest of them. They weren't very successful. But at least somebody knows if I mess with the Jews I'm going to have PR trouble. Sometimes that doesn't matter but sometimes it matters. And so if as a result of that a government or a ruler refrains from hurting the Jews good! Then then it worked. Um, This was the significance of Montefiore. Uh, Now the other side is that since he was thinking in terms of call and since he started visiting Israel on his own, um, he went He went seven or eight times. So he went in 1827 when it was really rough. And he went in 1830s, I remember. Uh, I mean, I can go on too long. This is going to take too long. He visited, I remember, in 1830s, that was right after the uh, earthquake in Sfat, and the Jews went and killed all the Jews. Actually, they took everybody's clothes off. Uh, so they came... His wife writes it in the, in the, in the um, what do you call it, in the, in the diary. They came and they said, so there's a whole, this is very sad what I'm saying. The whole Jewish community of tzvah, they're naked. See, that's what the Jews are. And they were going to kill the rabbi, but in the end they didn't, and this and that and the other. And Montefiore would come to Israel, and you know how it goes, everybody hits him up for money. So he went there expecting to give out money. Uh, and when he would come to Yushalayim, tzvah, or these kind of places, they would mamash line up, and he would give out money. Now, because people knew that, they would send him money to give out in Israel. He became like a one-man post office, mail thing. If somebody wants to contribute money, uh, they'll say, Listen, I know you go to Israel once in a while. I know you're an honest guy. I'm sending you $100. And when you go there, you know, give it out. Um, It's it's interesting. And uh, so when he came to the spot, he took out money from his pocket, bought everybody clothes. I'm just trying to tell you what the matzah was in Israel once upon a time. People have no idea. Okay? Uh, he was a from guy. I wouldn't exactly say he was a Haredi, but on the other hand, I think he was extremely aware that the only people moving to Israel in the 1800s are Haredim, Because these are the only guys that are willing to put up with the hardships. And so he did bankroll the yeshivas and all that sort of thing. He did. Um, and the Rabbi Yushalayim, Salander, was a diplomat. He knew how to get along with him. Disfired him. him, said, you're, you're a Sephardi, you know, you're one of us. So he, he did cooperate with Rabbonim. He wasn't anti from, that's not true. Um, but on the other hand, he already was thinking early on how to make a state of Israel. But he was smart enough to know you can't talk about it. I would say, in general, among leading English Jews, particularly Montefiore, and I'm going to tell you something that'll surprise you Benjamin Disraeli, who converted to Christianity. Really, 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 really. They were looking for ways, they'd never found it. In the eighteen hundreds, how could we set up a Jewish state? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It's a long subject and I'm just touching on on little bits of a long subject. But uh when he came in the eighteen fifties, uh he he actually there was the middle of the Crimean War, so that was England and Turkey fighting against Russia. So the Turks really needed to kiss up to the English. And Montefiore came there, they, they gave him a tour of the Harabaias, that was very controversial, you know, um, and he bought land, they let him buy land there, and that made Mishkin of which was the first Jewish uh, settlement outside the walls, uh, he bought other land, in general, when he went to Israel, on the different v- visits, he would try to do something practical, the Hainu, I mean, he gave money for yeshivas and kolels, he did, but he said that's not the whole story, that yeshivas and kolos said, yes it is, give us all the money, he said, I'll give you some money, But somebody I would have set up for a school to teach Sephardic girls to sew and and knit and things like that, you know, to make a Parnoso. I want to help somebody who's a Jewish farmer. There's a guy who wants a back, who wants to set up a a printing press. I know a guy who wants to make a windmill. I know a guy, you know, know, in his way, uh, he tried to encourage practical economic stuff to Israel in a from direction. Now, there's nothing I said until now is is anti-from. Uh, He did get involved, therefore, as a result, they dragged him in both sides in the Jewish politics of Israel, and, you know, the pro-Kolel types tried to use him for their purposes, the anti-Kolel types tried to use him for their purposes. But I would say, in general, Montefiore represents a step forward from the Leran brothers that I once spoke about, who said, if we're giving money, you have to sit and learn. Anything other than that, you're not allowed to do. Montefiore would say, I guess, no, sitting and learning is fine, that's good, too. But if somebody wants to come to Eretz Yisrael and open a business, great! If somebody comes to Eretz Yisrael, you know, and establish a farm or something like that, great! Right? That's good! So he was actually thinking of practical economic development. And I would say the beginnings of practical economic development starts with Mata Even before the Chove Sion starts and even before the Zionist movement starts. So... Aside from helping Claudius Rome, one side of it is to help um, Eretz Israel. And these activities um, made him a great man. I don't know if he was a great man, but involving himself in things involving Eretz Israel and Claudius Rome, when nobody else did, made him a, a, a super famous person. And so he achieved like a canonical status. I can tell you in Eastern Europe, he was a folk hero. Uh, People used to put his picture on the wall and things like this. Because somewhere out there is a guy. Now, he was a Shomer Mitzvah. He was after that, after in his 40s. He was. And um, I would say, and he, what's the right word? And he was proud of it. Uh, (laughs) He had a fancy, say. I mean, the guy was a millionaire. You imagine what his Seder looked like. Imagine what his Hanukkah looked like. Well, Well, so what's wrong with that? So he wanted to show you can be a rich, loaded guy and be and, and enjoy Judaism. That itself was a tremendous hazard. Okay? Because the other side was only the, the losers and the poor orthodox. Or well you can't say it with Montefiore. Okay, He could buy and sell everybody. So he emerged as a as a, a a kind of a mythical figure in this regard. Um I mentioned before Mishkin and Shahnanim, there was a guy in New Orleans, Judah Turov, who was a millionaire. It's a long complicated story, but suffice it to say, when he died, he had a million bucks in America at that time. And he left $60,000 for for Jerusalem. But it says like this, I'm sending the money, Montefiore Montefiore, should decide what to do with the money in Jerusalem. That's how he bought the Mishkanot Um uh, I'm just telling you, this is, he was like one man to stop in this regard. Uh, it was known, you know, he, the Jews could see wherever he goes, he brings his own <laughs> Right, Wherever he goes, he brings his own dishes, if necessary. Wherever he goes, he brings a rabbi. Wherever he goes, he wants a minion. This himself a tremendous kid of Okay? And put him in a different class than everybody else. As a result, by the time he died, he was a, canon, a, a, a an unbelievable figure. Okay? Now, um, his family didn't follow him. They weren't from I mean, he left it to his nephews, and he says, "I mean, you know, there were English uh, words left or whatever, but there were nothings." Uh, he was, a, uh, and his wife were unique. She died in 1862, so she predeceased him by 25 years or something like that, 20 some years. Uh, she was, without question, the most impressive Jewish woman of the 19th century, uh, because she used all of her classiness for Jewish uh, uh, purposes. If we would have had a two or three or four Montefiore's. I think Israel would have happened a lot earlier. You know what i That's what it is. He was the one guy, and and he wasn't even that imaginative. But he gave, but at least he tried. Okay? So if one guy like that had as much success as he had, even though he had his failures, but he had as much success as he had, then imagine, you know, if there had been a number of people like that. Now, I'll give you an example. When she died, so um, he said like this, I'm going to, this is very firm. I'm gonna make a yeshiva in her memory, Judas Montefiore College. So it should be on his estate. estate. 'Cause remember he had, like I say, a Jane Austen estate, you know, Ramsgate out there in East Cliff, wherever it's in the English countryside. He had like a, a mansion, let's say, with a, a lot of land. So on that man on that land we'll make a a yeshiva. It should be a Sephardic Yeshiva. Actually, his wife was Ashkenaz so says it's Sephardic and Ashkenaz. It didn't happen. You know, it was just like ten guys basically provided him with a minion because uh, he didn't know how to make yeshiva and uh, he left you know a karantayem some money and the Portuguese community screwed it over they made a lot of mistakes with it I don't want to go into all the scandals that emerged in the late 90s early 20th century it didn't go anywhere nowadays I understand I'm not British but I understand that they revived it and now it's a, it's like a Sephardi yeshiva in England or something like that they have connections there this it's, a, it's a real place um but, you know, in his time, like what did he know? He heard it's a, it's a pious thing to start a yeshiva, but how, duh, how do you do that? You see? Uh, it's a perfect example of the fact that he had good intentions, but, you know, he didn't know exactly what to do. But maybe nobody did in the 19th century. They're feeling their way forward. Um, all I can say is that uh, if he would have been in charge, you would have had a big aliyah, but would have conformed to basic, you know, Orthodox uh, rules. Okay? Um, and that's in general. His brother in law, the others, the Rothschild, they were richer. Um, they had their charities, all the rest of it. They were not as Jewish as he did. And they never, therefore, gained the affection of the Jewish masses the way he did. Um, so, children he didn't have, but fame and uh, a good shame, as we would say today, a shame to he was able to get. There's a lot more. If you read the wife's autobiography, which is thick, and then Doctor Love wrote a, uh, a memoir, which is thick, you get a ton of information on Montefiore visiting the different Jewish communities, and and the different activities. And it's very fascinating. I just like I said, I don't want to spend ten hours on this. Uh, so all I can do by today's talk is to simulate. those who are interested. You could, I think it's all online. I, bet you, I believe these are old books published in the 1800s. This is probably all online. And uh, you see the different attempts he made. He met with the, the, the different European rulers. I repeat, he didn't have any real power. But you want to know something? The image, right? Like we say today, the fake news. Uh, nowadays, they're inventing you know fake things. And then it has a power. In his case, he invented a fake thing called the Jewish people. And then it made it have a certain power. That's the most fascinating part of it to me. Um, That's enough for now. With that, once again, I want to thank the Tringelsteins. And with that, I bid you everybody a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.